recently read a blog post from 2015 by Leah Tams, writing for the National Museum of American History website, titled Embroidery Under Fire. And it made me think, what actually happened to the women and their families during war and to those wounded soldiers shipped home, some of them to long months of rehabilitation and hospitalisation. Leah begins her blog writing about the screaming incoming World War I shells that sent French peasant women dashing to their cellars for safety, a scene that's described in a letter dated June 1916. It reads... The women sit inside their houses under fire constantly and embroider. When a shell is heard on its way, they duck into the cellars until it bursts and then come out again at once. The cellars are all marked, that is the safe ones, with signs pointing to them and telling their capacity. The women who embroider are those whose men, sons, husbands and fathers are at the front or wounded, or killed. Accompanied by a painting by artist Claggett Wilson, one of America's first modernist painters, titled Flower of Death, the bursting of a heavy shell, not as it looks, but as it feels and sounds and smells. Painted around 1919 and now housed in the Smithsonian American Art Museum, combined with Tam's powerful writing, this conveyed the true meaning of war for those who were at home, simply trying to live and carry on. And Claggett Wilson would have known and understood, having served as a lieutenant in World War I, returning to France to document his experiences in a series of war paintings, which is why this work is so emotive. It had me thinking of the power of embroidery, not only in recording history via the imagery uh, used, but also as a beneficial activity for both men and women to help heal and mend the atrocities of war and to earn an income to help provide for their families. So, in this episode, I'll be researching war embroideries from World War I, worked by men and women, and the reasons behind those embroideries. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. There were many reasons why people embroidered and embroidered their memories of war. For some, it was a means of income to help stay alive and feed their families while their menfolk were away fighting. And for others, it was a form of therapy and rehabilitation. 
Let's begin with uh, learning some more about how they earned an income from this embroidery. It's more than impressive that women in France experienced the constant fire of war when shells were bursting all around them, as mentioned in that letter from World War I. They had to be close to the front line, and yet they were still creating meticulous embroidered scenes of war. The letter read in my intro detailing the women's working conditions included some embroidered items made during World War I, which now resides in collections in the National Museum of American History. The embroideries use military imagery and are beautifully worked in various techniques, including cross-stitch and needlepoint. They represent the Allied forces of the Great War. One worked in a detailed cross-stitch tableau depicting colourful soldier figures, flags and coats of arms. Another is an evocative image of Paris with protective planes flying overhead. That's an unusual image, I have to say, but it's very evocative and emotive. Another cross-stitched military scene is worked and applied to a knitting bag, showing four cavalrymen, three mounted bearing flags and one standing with his horse. All are wearing blue jackets, red trousers, black boots and helmets with feathers and bordered on three sides with trailing greenery. Through embroidery, these women were fighting to maintain a livelihood and to rebuild war-torn communities, aided through the Agency of the Society for Employment of Women in France and other similar organisations, with all the money going back to the women and their families in France. The American Committee for Devastated France was headed by J.P. Morgan's daughter, Anne Morgan, and a licensed physician, Anne Murray Dyke, with a focus on caring for wounded French soldiers, but also forming a division focusing on reconstructing French civilian life, helping to set up farms, dispensaries, schools and sewing workshops. So these upper-class American women helped French peasant women fight for themselves and their families, for each other and for their country during World War I. But what of the wounded returned soldiers themselves? Stage and film actor Ernest Thesiger, 1879-1961, was himself a wounded World War I veteran who was an ardent embroiderer, seeing firsthand its potential as a form of therapy, as well as a source of income for disabled veterans. Thesiger created Queen Anne or Chippendale chair designs and founded the Disabled Soldiers Embroidery Industry and other like uh, with other like-minded individuals. It finally gained momentum, attracting royal patronage with support from Queen Mary, the Prince of Wales and the Queen of Spain. Queen Mary accepted an altar frontal for use in the private chapel at Buckingham Palace and the Prince commissioned a, an historical map for his home.
The Queen of Spain received a stool cover and in 1933 Elizabeth, now uh, Queen Elizabeth II, received a small blue bag inscribed with her initials with a crown on the front. Princess Margaret, not to be left out, received an embroidered chair on her wedding day with other commissions including the Hague banner at Ypres Memorial Chapel. Now let's move on to the rehabilitation of these injured soldiers. We all know that World War I was one of the bloodiest conflicts in history, killing between 9 and 11 million people and wounding over 20 million. And for those who survived, being shipped away from the front wasn't the end of their trials. Medical practice was still quite primitive and PTSD was unheard of, so long months of uh, hospitalisation and arduous rehabilitation loomed for many of these returning soldiers. Learning a new skill while convalescing provided a lifeline and embroidery was a perfect outlet offering a quiet, portable and intimate activity that could be undertaken alone or in a group, providing the opportunity to develop fine motor skills after serious injury. Museums from around the world house surviving rehabilitation embroideries, including the Australian War Memorial and the Te Papa Museum in New Zealand. A number of these embroideries were heraldic and patriotic in nature, showing amazingly delicate and artistic skill. Yet Lance Corporal Alfred Biggs from the 20th Battalion AIF used a spray of flowers in one of his rehabilitation embroideries, but he also embroidered a cushion cover depicting the Australian coat of arms along with many other patriotic embroidered works. Lance Corporal Biggs fought to defend the Anzac trenches on the ridge known as Russell's Top. And according to the Guardian Australia's website and their blog, how embroidery therapy helped First World War veterans find a common thread, uh, written by Dr Emily Brayshaw, Biggs was awarded the Military Medal for Great Initiative and Bravery at Lagnacourt on the 15th of April 1917, but was wounded in the Battle of Bullecourt the following month having shrapnel shattering his right humerus, damaging the nerves in his arms so badly that he could scarcely use his right hand. Beeks was uh, one of more than 156,000 Australians wounded, gassed or taken prisoner. He spent nearly 12 months in hospital in Rouen, France, before being moved to Tooting Military Hospital in London, where he was encouraged to take up embroidery, finally returning to Sydney in 1918, spending almost two years at the 4th Australian General Hospital at Randwick. He was discharged from the army in 1920. Private J. Hartnett, 13th Battalion AIF, worked the flags of Australia and England above a crown enclosed by sprays of leaves and berries with a banner underneath stating, Australia will be there. Yet these men also had to face societal conflict because they were doing fancy work, something usually only done by women. 
Those, however, who were able to embrace this fine art were well rewarded. In a blog from Inspirations magazine from 2018 titled Embroidery as Rehabilitation After World War I, the writer suggests this. It was a way of calming the mind, a way of producing something which was valuable and sought after, and an activity to help them forget they had any disability at all. The post also includes a poignant black and white photo courtesy of the Alexander Turnbull Library, Wellington, New Zealand, of Leslie Hinger, 1868-1942, and other World War I returned servicemen, all embroidering. Obviously staged, yet heart-wrenching nonetheless, the image shows two officers and two nurses overseeing five wounded men, all with their heads down over their hooped embroidery work. On one bed lies a pair of crutches and one of the soldiers is in a wheelchair. And although it may only offer small solace amid the ravages of war, it did provide calm and therapy for these men. Another magnificent example of rehabilitation embroidery includes an altar frontal and an altar superfrontal belonging to St Paul's Cathedral, where a recent service for the Platinum Jubilee for Queen Elizabeth II took place. The frontal is made from cream silk damask, decorated with applique, embellished with couching, embroidery and gold threadwork, along with gems of various kinds. Divided into three design elements and rich with religious symbolism, the design includes emblematic floral sheaths, the holy grail and paired palm fronds. But what's worthy of note here is that the frontals were stitched by 138 wounded soldiers from Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa. Men still recovering in hospital worked on them and their work was sent to the Royal School of Needlework London where the pieces were stitched onto the frontals. A surviving book records the name, rank and hospital or convalescent home of each of the soldiers who contributed embroidery for the frontal, which was first used on July 6, 1919 at the National Service of Thanksgiving following the end of the war and thereafter on appropriate occasions over the next two decades. After the destruction of the altar during the bombing of St Paul's in World War II, the frontals were put into storage, where they remained until they were restored in 2014, in time for the centenary commemoration of the start of the First World War on August 3, 2014. It was the first time the frontal was used after 70 years. It's now permanently housed at the St Paul's Cathedral Collection and what a magnificent memorial this is to each of those men who served their countries and survived. The pre-centre of St Paul's made this point. The hands that clung to life in the trenches of the First World War and which lifted the bodies of dead comrades into graves came home to craft this beautiful altar frontal. 
It is a symbol of faith despite everything and a deeply moving tribute to those who did not return. Hospitals in England, France, Australia and New Zealand provided bright, clean, quiet environments where the men could perform meditative, transformative work that was essential to their rehabilitation from their physical and mental wounds, offering embroidery therapy with themes ranging from the predictable military heraldry to scenes from the French countryside to pieces for their sweethearts. The Bodman Keep Military Museum in Cornwall houses an example of a sweetheart pincushion. Shaped in the form of a heart, soldiers created the pincushion using kits containing the fabric, beads and pins needed. They were usually personalised to an individual or loved one or reflected their regiment. Some were also decorated using poems or messages printed on small silk patches that came in cigarette packages along with their rations. Now that's clever. But the work of soldiers in Australia also created economic opportunities as their embroidery was sold at the Red Cross Hospital Handicrafts Shop in Sydney where shoppers were encouraged to purchase to help the soldiers help themselves. The Red Cross also supplied printed templates for the men to embroider. Two recent studies have helped articulate the rationale for rehabilitation embroidery. The first demonstrated that undertaking an everyday craft activity promotes emotional flourishing. The second showed that embroidery allows individuals to work through the mental trauma associated with war. Occupational therapy used as a method of therapy can be found as far back as circa 100 BCE when Greek physician Asclepiades treated patients with mental illness using therapeutic baths, massage, exercise and music. Later, the Roman Celsus prescribed music, travel, conversation and exercise to his patients. However, this all changed by medieval times when the use of these interventions was rare. The arts and crafts movement that took place from 1860 to 1910 also impacted on occupational therapy used against things such as monotony and the lost autonomy of factory work and as a means of promoting learning through doing, providing a creative outlet and serving as a way to avoid boredom during long hospital stays. And since World War I, occupational therapy has proved to be helpful in having a positive effect on patients' health and well-being by helping to create structure and organise time. It also helped with focus while giving a purpose to recover, improved manual dexterity and helped prevent boredom and melancholy. Now, while many of the names of the men who embroidered these rehabilitation embroideries are known and recorded, who taught them? Women from the Royal School of Needlework volunteered to teach the soldiers, yet we don't know who they are. 
Judith Friedland, author of Restoring the Spirit, The Beginnings of Occupational Therapy in Canada, suggests that many Canadian women also did groundbreaking work in this field. Many were either ward aides, artists or teachers, well suited to helping men to learn simple craft work that would build their self-esteem, keep their minds and hands busy, forming a crucial part of their recovery. In 2018, Kristen Den Hartog writes in a blog, The Noise of War, 1914-1920, about a quilt made by wounded soldiers convalescing at the Royal Staffordshire Infirmary in 1917. Each was given the task of embroidering his name and regiment, along with some decorative element on a small square of fabric. Sixty squares rendered in shades of pink and blue were patched together and a photo taken of these war-weary men wearing their hospital blues with the completed quilt. Hartog's blog also records a 1921 New York Herald article that raves about the ingenious work going on at uh, the Fox Hills-based hospital led by a competent woman instructor. The article's author described walking through the wards coming upon men with powerful big frames, except for a missing leg or a twisted arm or a hole in the neck. Each one had his head bent over the bed, picking up little beads and stringing them out endlessly into something that looks as though it was going to be a shopper's purse. He asked one of the men if the work was hard on the eyes, and the man answered, It's only hard on one of them, the other's glass. How sad's that? One teacher who is known to us uh, is Louisa Pessel, internationally known for her her pioneering use of needlework and head of the Winchester Cathedral Broderers, who organised over 180 volunteers to create cushions, kneelers and arms bags for the church, which are still in use today. Pessel worked with Belgian refugees as well as soldiers during World War I, teaching them to sew for the soothing value of doing something with their hands. Pessel was among the first to advocate for and teach embroidery to soldiers suffering from shell shock. In conjunction with the Abram Peel Neuropsychiatric Hospital, Pessel taught soldiers to embroider with a well-known example of their work being the altar frontal made for use during worship at the Abram Peel Hospital, now part of the collection of the Bradford Cathedral. So successful was she that her scheme was replicated in other towns. So, from offering the ability to earn an income for a number of French peasant women to the use of embroidery in the healing of both the physical and mental health of wounded soldiers, the power of embroidery is highly evident. It also helped build self-esteem and pride in themselves, their regiment and the country they fought for. And to end this episode are the words of Kristen Den Hartog from 2018. 
how brilliant to construct something as a means of healing from so much destruction, to stitch, string, mould, weave, paint, paste and knit in order to put things together again after such a painful time in history. Those are powerful words indeed, healing from such destruction. Have you enjoyed this episode? I hope so. I know I've certainly enjoyed presenting it to you. But there's much more to come in 2022, so do stay tuned and subscribe. Stitch Safari has now reached over 7,500 downloads, and that's all thanks to you, and I'm extremely grateful. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Welp magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at January 2022 by Feedspot. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into Stitch, embroidery and design. Bye for now. Bye.